this actually work for once? Oh, I'll knock it over. Oh boy. There we go. Gone. We've got viewers, presumably. Oh, that tweet go out. Hot tweet action. It's indoors. It's raining here in New York. It's crummy. I have to have class. In, I have to have recess inside. Not pref not ideal, but what are you going to do? We're going to have to get used to this one way or the other. Yeah, the beard's getting a little big. I'm going to have to cut it again because I realize that, especially on these streams, my fucking head gains 10 pounds after a certain density of beard, and it it's like the Zardoz head showing up and spewing guns and uh, sandwiches. And I shave it down, and all of a sudden I look slender again. It's a, it's a, it's a classic trick. <coughs> Somebody's asking for my Steely Dan opinion. I do not have one. All I know about Steely Dan... Named after a sex toy that's uh, in Naked Lunch. Originally had Chevy Chase as the drummer before he uh, left. Presumably because nobody could stand him because he's one of the least appealing men on earth. That they're known for very beautifully and richly textured studio productions. They're sort of the opposite of the Grateful Dead in that regard. And that they have very... Uh, Lyrics that are, according to some, profound and incredibly uh, clever and brilliant, Sondheimian and others, uh, pretentious. As to the actual music, I don't know. Don't care, haven't really listened to it. Is Dirty Work Steely Dan? Because that is a great song. All right, well, that helps. I didn't know that was, dirt, that was Steely Dan. I don't, Reeling in the Years is them too, right? I hate that song. So it's one and the other then. I really don't like Reeling in the Years, but I really, really do enjoy uh, Dirty Work. Uh, and I don't know why Steely Dance becomes a topic of internet conversation every three months. There are a few things that reliably pop up like Old Faithful. David Foster Wallace is one of them. Steely Dan is another. It seems a lot of it is about like this ritualistic uh, bringing down of icons of, a, of, like, of some sort of perceived overlord, cultural overlord, because obviously DFW stands in for male, white male literary canon, right? And, and I think Steely Dan serves a similar purpose in standing in for this sort of boomer era idea of like hipster rock and roll. Because Steely Dan... I mean, from little I know about it, just given its reputation, it does kind of seem like the David Foster Wallace of rock music, right? Like, it's got a similar demographic, only older, obviously, uh, and it's got a similar cachet among similar types of people, 
and gets similar resistance. Similarly found to be cold and unengaging by those who don't appreciate it. Yeah, I have really realized somebody, the thing about like hating Steely Dan is about hating. It's like hating DFW is hating your boyfriend and hating Steely Dan is hating your dad. So if you're online doing the discourse of bringing one of them down, that is the direction of your ire. So I guess that's how you can chart the lunar cycle is when the boyfriends are getting a little annoying it's time to remind them how much you hate uh, DFW and the literary bros. And then whenever you're thinking back on your, you know, withholding or distant or in some way unsatisfying father figure, time to drop uh, Steely Dan. And then, of course, Radiohead. Well, yeah, no, Radiohead is the direct, like, your brother's band, but they don't get the ritualized hate that Steely Dan does because it's for a different generation of dudes that they're mad at. Uh, somebody wants to go. Somebody wants to go over my birth chart. I know what it is. I am a Libra, Capricorn, Moon, Leo rising, Earth, Wind, Fire. Nobody get mad at me for say, saying saying about talking about astrology. It's not real. No one thinks it's real. It's just fun. And more importantly, it's a way to talk about yourself with other people in a way that doesn't seem as self-absorbed because it allows them to talk about themselves on the same, in the same way. It doesn't rely on personal experience. It's like this secondary category where you can talk about yourself sort of an abstract as opposed to events in your life, and that gives, it, gives other people a chance to play along, and it's not alienating the way that, you know, uh, just a narcissistic uh, way to talk about yourself would be. I will say this, though, that, like, if you do invest it with just the suspension of disbelief necessary to care enough to like look into it, it's very easy to see how people get excited about it because there are traces. And of course, everyone knows, well, yeah, that's because these are just, these are just collections of human traits into like groupings and everyone is going to recognize themselves in it because everyone has all of these traits. Yes. But, you know, pa humans are pattern recognizing animals. And so when you see it, you are going to be like, oh shit, that really does track. Like, I gotta say that I do feel like a Libra. I feel like that's right. Of like the sketches that go along with the different signs, I feel like, yeah, that's the one that if you just said, what do you think you are? I would think that was me. But then again, I can't disestate, pull apart the fact that I know that, you know? That's why it's not real. But like I said, But yeah, it's all fake. But the thing is, it's no more fake than Myers-Briggs personality tests. Like, how many people hate astrology but put have, like, IntJ in their fucking Twitter bio? It's all made up. Cap Moon is my discipline side, indeed. To the degree that I have any discipline, which is not much.
Jung definitely is a based weirdo. There's no question. It's amazing how Jung and Freud were both right, like in broad strokes, like in their understanding of like the way the brain operates at an individual level, and then how that uh, the fact of living among humans who all experience things the same way generates this third, this other dimension that uh, that Jung was able to uh, to recognize. Like you're essentially talking about macro and micro psychology there. Uh, I I was very bad. I I, I so he's asking if I ever uh, if I was going to learn an instrument. I uh, I played saxophone for a year when I you had in my my, my elementary school your sec like your fifth and sixth grade you had to join orchestra or band you had to do it, and I picked band and I picked the saxophone. I was not good. Uh, and the thing is, what killed it for me, I mean, it was never really good and it never really felt very natural. But what killed my ability to keep doing it is that they stopped letting me cheat and write the names of the notes on the fucking uh, music because I could not ever read the notes. Like I couldn't see the little note and know what it corresponded to. My brain is actually terrible. It cannot, and I realize that what it, what it is is that my brain is just words. My brain is just a bunch of words. Because it still blows my mind to know that there are people, including people I know, and I know they're not lying to me, who say that they don't think in words, like their thoughts aren't articulated into language that is sort of heard in their mind. And I'm like, well, what the fuck kind of brain do you have? What? And yeah, like there are people who just see pictures and like they get sort of these every my brain is complete words. So like anything that's that's not that, not as good. So notation, uh um numbers. Oh my god, I am so bad. I almost didn't graduate college because of I had to take one math class. And I put, kept putting it off until the last semester, and I fucking ate shit, and I almost failed it. I think I didn't even know if I was going to fucking graduate until like, ugh, like the last weeks of school. So it's weird knowing that. You, I mean, and it's it's true, like. That's one of the things that generates different personalities and different abilities is how your brain processes the information that's receiving. And my brain, for whatever reason, compulsively and, 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 and inextricably connects everything to a articulated verbal uh, symbol. And visual symbol, I guess. But, but like verbal in the sense that I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it in my head. It's, I'm not seeing the words printed out. Uh, I'm doing tech support, apparently. Uh, apparently, the, the RSS feed for the podcast version of these is not updating. I'll at, tell Chris about it, and it'll be taken care of. I'm sorry. And, it, and it's how you... You, it's how you end up with people with different skill sets and different understandings of the world and different, like, 
people might experience the exact same phenomenon in their life and have it activate the exact same parts of their brain in the same way and have the thing that comes after that moment lead them in completely different directions based on the way that their brain structures the, not, the information that it receives. And that's why I have never, like thinking about it now, I think that's one of the reasons that I am very, uh, I had a very hard time accessing the concept of spirituality for so long in my life. Like I couldn't, I could not get myself to believing in anything. And it made me feel detached from every emotion I ever felt. And it made me feel, I used to say that if, that I thought that, and I, now I feel like I've, I've confirmed this for myself, that, that religion is a physical faculty in that it is parts of your brain processing the information and adhering it to emotion in a way that leaves you with a residue of this, this adherence to a system of symbols. And I think that's correct, and I don't think my brain worked that way. And now I think the thing that was keeping it from that is the simple fact that I so compulsively alienate myself from all experiences almost instantaneously in the form of turning them into symbols. And that means that emotions can't be felt. And the thing I've really come to realize in the last six months or so is that there is no information, there is no truth that is not adhered to feeling. That, that emotions are in fact the fact, emotion, like, like Ben Shapiro is an exemplar of like this kind of, uh, the kind of wrong World like failure to understand how uh, reason works, how like what epistemology is. It's the same failing that I had as the one that Ben Shapiro has, and one that many many people do have because we are more and more symbolically oriented over time because of our greater alienation from our lives and our uh, greater dependency on a symbolic you know uh, simulation of emotional connections in the form of engagements online, which are inherently symbolic. In a way that physical engagements can't are not physical and physical events, physical interactions. But even my physical interactions are alienated to that point. And so for a while, I remember when I first heard the phrase "facts don't care about your feelings," and it felt like, oh, I get why people like him because it appeals to that notion that that there is such a thing as truth that is independent of emotion. And in fact, now I realize, no, Ben Shapiro, you little fucking moron. Facts are feelings. They literally are feelings. Hume was correct on that point. All understanding of facts, all understanding of re all, all reason is motivated by, by feeling. And even mine was, but it was through this, it was through a, a it was through like a muffling, you know, it was it was through a bedsheet or a or a or a, a towel stuffed in the mouth, you know, it was gagged. Because I just could not access the moment. As soon as the moment passed, it was transmogrified into this symbolic representation of itself. And as a result, I felt like, okay, I'm just going to be a miserable materialist piece of shit who tries to distract himself from the knowledge that he's eventually going to die, which will, over time, drive him insane because he will not be able to conceive of a world in which he is not in because he is completely detached in his mind from all other things in the universe, which is, in every level, a delusion of senses. It is a delusion and a failure to actually perceive the world around you. It is, a, it is the fact of the, of, of the happenstance of your brain chemistry and the life you live creating a situation where 
you cannot access reality. You access a shadow, literally reversed mirror, funhouse mirror of reality, in which, no, it's not true that you are absolutely intertwined with every living thing, everything, period, that there's only one substance in the universe, that death is no more possible uh, than the extinguishment of, of time and space. You don't, um, you don't feel that. You feel, oh no, I am the only thing in the world, the only thing in the universe. So the universe's end and mine are the same thing. And since I cannot conceive of that one, I can't conceive of the other. And so as the reality of it comes in contact with the fantasy of your eternal selfness, I just I spent so much of my time as a hypochondria-wracked, miserable person because that sense was always there, that sense of looming annihilation. Like I had my first uh like I had my first heart attack in my head when I was 14 years old at a fucking junior high assembly. I mean, and then I had my spinal injury in my teenagers years, which completely threw me off track and, and led me feeling like anything could happen to my body at any moment. And that only made it worse. And so I, I live my life trying to distract myself from this reality. And then I could do it for the most part, but my failure to do it completely, my failure to completely sublimate was evidenced by my hypochondria, by this nagging sense of annihilation which was just my body's awareness of its own finitude that couldn't uh, be integrated into my brain's uh, insistence that such a thing is impossible. Now, I'm out of dualism. I'm saying that that was what I was, and now I'm, I'm out of dualism. I mean, obviously, I rebound to it in moments of instinct, moments of accumulated, you know, habit that have come through that life tunnel, but... It, over time, it's being reduced. But I'm saying is the dualism, in my mind, I think, was, was determined by the material reality of my brain, which for one reason or another, the experience and, and biology, nature and nurture, is unable to feel without symbolic abstraction. And that's why it took psychedelics for me to break through that. It took, my, uh, took a technology that just took the part of my brain that wasn't paying enough attention, that was instantly, that was not being engaged while everything else was turning the world into symbols, and made me, made me observe it, made me actually sense it. And that extended, uh, that, that expanded sensation broke through this wall that had been there. That was this symbolic order that overawed my, my senses and my real feelings. You get over one thing and then the other one. That's 100% correct. I would go through spells because I have a lot of pain associated with my back injury, including, I'll be real with y'all, uh, some gastrointestinal issues that lead me to have a lot of pain in my abdomen sometimes. For a while, I was convinced that I had pancreatic cancer, I had colon cancer, and that would stick in my head for months, and it would kind of be this background anxiety. And then I would rationalize to myself, well, if you had it, you'd be dead by now, and then I'm able to be like, yeah, that's right, that's not real. But then, you know, I would have some sort of uh, arm injury, some tingling in my fingers, a nerve issue, because I have a lot of spinal 
issues with my, uh, I have a lot of nerve pinching and stuff. I have big herniated disc. So I would convince myself that various chest pains and arm sensations meant I was going to have a heart attack. And then once that was not long, no longer logical to me, I would go back to cancer. And I was on this cycle. And the thing that broke it was this realization of where it was coming from more than anything. And now the main thing that stops me from getting in those cycles is that I'm not afraid of the thing. I'm not afraid of what it would mean if that was true. I mean, obviously I am afraid of it, but I'm not as keenly afraid of it because I am not as uh, deluded about my separateness from everything else in the universe. And that is why, I mean, it's horrible to hear people get prescriptive about shit. Like, man, you got to do acid, man, but... I find that especially if you find that you are in, unable to feel, it very well might be. If you're watching this, if you're listening to this, if you're uh, online all the time, and the substitute shadow symbol world of online is good enough to make up for the more emotionally rich experience of interacting with the world around you, then it very well may, might be because part of your brain is just not there. It's not... It's not perceiving enough to overcome that feedback loop of, of the sensation and then the symbolic translation of the sensation. You need to speed it up. Reuptake, which is literally what psychedelics do, is that they enhance reuptake. But the reason that, you know, it's, you don't want to be prescriptive more than anything is, is that we have experience with this shit. The CIA brought uh, LSD to America in the 60s and had Timothy Leary spread it around the country like Johnny Appleseed. And what did it do? You know, what, what was, the, what was the, the, the radicalism that was created out of that expansion of consciousness? It was bad news, I would say, on, on average, overall bad news i mean the way that people talk about how honestly it's tiresome to hear people talk about everything is an op online but honest but if you wanted to say the internet in general is a fucking psyop considering its role in channeling young specifically young alienation from capitalism into cultural spectacle and it's like uh indulgence in narcissism it has the same effect that lsd had on the uh, new left, but in that case, it literally was an op. It literally was. The CIA bought like 100 tons of fucking LSD from Sandoz. They bought like 90% of the, of the LSD on Earth to take to the U.S. But the other thing is, the other thing that gets you there is just sitting refusing to allow the symbolic order to overawe your senses. And that requires you to give it nothing to symbolically render. Give it nothing to turn into symbols. Even your thoughts will run out if they aren't refreshed by exposure to new things. And that's what meditation does, is that it robs you of the ability to drive your body into this, or drive your mind into this symbolic reverie because you're not getting new stimuli.
And that's like, all psychedelics do is reproduce the sensory experience of deep meditation. It's just that to do deep meditation, you have to already be able to like, you know, reward that experience. You have to know, you, you have to want to do it. Like that's the big thing is that nothing gets done unless you really want to do it. Is if your desire, your libidinal energy has been channeled into a genuinely felt connection to every other life in the universe. If it's not genuinely felt, you get back to the libidinal politics that we're practicing now everywhere and it completely online and completely within the current political culture. But there's a yeah, there's a reason that people talk about waking up and stuff. So the idea that it that the that that the satori moment is one of a awakening to a consciousness, because you realize that what what made your life a nightmare is that it was a, it was unconscious. You were not being conscious of the world around you. You were living in a symbolic haze. You were living in a demiurgical shadow realm. The problem is, is that you have to be able to keep accessing that. And, the, and that's why just haphazard exposure to psychedelics that are pursued without rigor and without discipline won't lead to anything because that feeling has to be translated. Like for me, what made this experience with, with LSD different than other ones I've done, because I've done it plenty of times before. I did it at fucking CPAC. The thing that made it different this time is that for whatever reason, the thoughts I was having that led up to the... the the actual emotion, the actual explosion of feeling, and um, and then come back, came back down from, were connected in a way that I could symbolically link that experience to a cause of reason that could convince my brain that it was true. Because if I wasn't able to convince it symbolically, I was never going to be able to feel anything because I couldn't access feeling. And that was when I started to feel, you know, that's when a lot of the things that felt, a lot of the things in my life that felt impossible became possible because the, the artificial structure side built in my head to, to reduce the number of options I had to what I thought was real, they were exploded. Like those, and I realized, oh, like these aren't actually problems in any real sense. Because the thing that I'm worried about happening is not something <clears throat> that is worth caring about because I care about something else. Because I know what it is to care about something. Uh, and I just want to say that the politics, the synthetic politics, like if politics, if politics practiced from the heart is about love, 
which I've tried, and which I think is 100% accurate. You know, the heart, the, the sense of connection is what drives you to the conclusion that we're all in this together. Therefore, profits shouldn't exist. Capitalism shouldn't exist. There should be no, no hierarchy of, of exploitation because the accumulation of, of surplus for a few people is, is, it's not just wrong, it's irrational because you're not, you're, you're not part of a different thing. You're part of the same fucking thing, you idiot. You're, why are you hoarding this? Like, you're not separate from it. And so it has to be, it should be defeated. But the, synthet the synthetic politics, the politics of rationality, uh, stripped of emotion that we practice online, and when I say emotion, that's another word for spirituality, uh, that, spir that, sac that secularized politics in, in the sense of we're only operating out of base instinct here. Politics is the assumption that we are all separate and we are all out for ourselves and politics is about figuring out the best way to do that. And the difference in that frame is the Republicans say we're all, uh, competition is the only way to sort deserving from the undeserving. The Democrat, the liberal says there's no such thing as deserving and undeserving. Uh, but capitalism is still necessary because we're all separated from one another. And in order to accept, to extend like the idea of rights to all, which includes property, it has to, uh, then we all have to operate from personal base instinct. But that base instinct will lead us to cooperate with one another because it's more efficient that way. That argument is sterile. And it leads towards where we are, which is two, two politics, two dueling politics of sadism, of hate. Because we see lives that are totally restrained and, lives, and, and futures that will only be more miserable than the present, that will only be worse. This is the first time, I think, uh, in, in modern history, when the, the, the current gen people living have no expectation that the future will even be worth living in. How That's unprecedented. And what it leads to, if that's assumed, because remember, you need to have a grounded spiritual politics to overturn this arrangement. And if we assume, as everyone who is operating within this realm does, that no, that moment is past, this is all we have, then, then we are in fact on a course for doom. Whether you're conservative or a liberal, whether you're a reactionary or a progressive, whether you think that humankind is inherently evil or that it's good whether you think that the distribution of resources along class lines is, is, the, uh, is virtuous, it's, it's, it's a divinely inspired thing, uh, or you think that it is uh, wrong and it's the byproduct of uh, the evil of the human heart. Uh, no matter how you slice it, politics cannot resolve to anything other than degradation from where we are now. And therefore, all we can really do is assign blame and offer punishment. If politics is collective action and no good action can be taken, only bad action can be taken, and we want the bad action to be taken against the people that we hate. And that is what the asshole pussy party is going to be about. That's what that politics is going to be dominated by. It's already, we've already seen it coming into strip. And the reason I think in the long run, like all this shit, all this dance, angels dancing on the head of a fucking pen bullshit about, oh, the PMC, is it a real class? And, well, is the, are liberals uh, actually a cultural elite? And uh, what's, what? And is it college? What is college? Well, there are plenty of people who go to college who aren't, who aren't wealthy. And what, 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 that's, 
All of that is secondary. The, the only reason any of that matters is to answer the question, well, what happens? What is like, why are we arguing these points if not to figure out what is going to happen so we can intervene with it? The point is not to post, it is to change the world, as some people have said. So what, that's the only salient element to this point. And to me, the salient point about the college-no-college no college divide that's going to come and over to become and define the parties is that it is going to, over the long run, help the Republicans and help the most socially reactionary version of punitive uh, neoliberalism because if voting is going to be voting to punish your enemies, whose enemies are more people both who went to college and who didn't go to college were going to want to punish. And I think that in a culture where we have these lurid, ostentatious displays of completely removed and vilely insensitive cultural decadence, uh, our fucking 500 streaming services and Hollywood movies and, and a culture of celebrity and, and, and glamour, while everyone is miserable, the fact that everyone within that structure is essentially a Democrat and will tell you so, that is a visible person to hate in this system. Who are you supposed to hate for the Democrats? You're not even supposed to hate anybody if you're a liberal Democrat, but even on the left, who are you supposed to hate? Billionaires? Who knows a billionaire? How often do you interact with a billionaire? How often do you see a billionaire on TV or in a movie? How, hell, billionaires don't tell you who to vote for. The media telling you how horrible it is and defending it to you, saying, oh yeah, all this terrible stuff is actually good. Lying to your face, pissing in your face and telling you it's raining. They're all liberals. The Trump presidency proved that. They're all fucking liberals. They all want to talk Russiagate for fucking four years and now, oh, the election, there's no corruption there. It's like, yeah, you might say that's because they practiced, you know, all these, these institutional val values. Guess what? These institutional values over time will be coded more and more as liberal. Right now, like half of it is, but it's going to get pushed. Even... Of the billionaires, the most visible ones, the ones people most know about because they spend so much of their time on their platforms, on TikTok, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Google, they're all liberals too. And the funny thing is, is in that case, it's not because they're part of some fucking cultural uh, Marxist conspiracy. It's because we're talking about a situation where liberal values come to encompass everything within the structure because that is what separates it from pure totalitarian authoritarianism, is the illusion of deliberation through structures, like politics, like culture. So over time, as, as actual life gets more and more threadbare, those institutions that are supposed to legitimize it are going to become more and more illegitimate and more and more associated with Democrats because the thing that generates them at a, at a cultural, superstructural level is the experience of college and the attendance of it. And so, every, and so these... Tech CEOs adhere to the notion of, uh, of open debate, right? The idea that we're a platform. We're a platform. We're not here to, to publish speech. We're only here to... They do that because they don't want to get sued. Because if they were a publisher, they would be liable for the shit people did on their fucking platform. They can't do that. So they have a vested financial interest in adhering to this liberal nostrum. But then within it, there are other liberal uh, uh, demands, such as... Uh, profit maximization, which tell you that certain political uh, expressions are bad for business and you're going to want to rem remove them. And that means that 
you're just telling more and more people that you exist to support the, adher the appearance of this fraudulent status quo, which the culture exists to perpetuate, which it's not because it's in charge, it's because it's in charge of the superstructure. The Democratic Party is in charge of creating a, uh, a, a um, pseudo, an illusion of movement, replacing the existence of inertia with the appearance of forward of, uh, of deliberation and of process and of practice. It's happening anyway. The engine is driving us to where we are. The engine of profit, struggling against the declining rate of profit, is driving us towards this full uh, hyper-immiseration and exploitation of everyone, starting at the bottom and then going upward. Just squeezing uh, uh, the life out of people. And as it does that, its cultural representation is going to become more and more associated with Democrats and the left more broadly because those are the people people are going to see. Those are the people that are going to interact with in their culture, on their online, in their media. The bad guys of the left are hidden. They're behind the scenes because their critique of who's responsible is more accurate, but it's still limited by this liberal framework, not because it's all within the capitalist structure. And so that is why over time, I think more and more people, including working class people, including people who are directly impacted by Republican policies, are going to vote to punish those or own or drag or whatever those who they most are uh, associate with the misery of their lives. And that will be these superstructural uh, uh, figures. And that means that they'll vote Republican and they'll vote to help eventually extinguish culture completely uh, and replace it with the bare coercion of a mechanized post-fascism. Well, oh, my throat is quite... Uh, hmm. I gotta get another drink. I don't have any more um, white claws, though. How would America be different if Reconstruction wasn't fucked up? Oh, boy. Well, how long do you have? Uh, I've actually thought about this. Um, so I just read a book, an interesting book. I love counterfactual history, as you all know. Uh, and somebody wrote a book that is uh, Philip Cundiff uh, for Zero Books, and the, it's called Lenin Lives. And the premise is, what if Lenin hadn't died? And it's a 100-year retrospective of what would have happened if the Soviet Union... If essentially, the premise is, what if the Soviet Revolution had, had in fact hooked up with the German Revolution and created a... Like a, a and hooked up the agricultural backwater of Russia with the industrial dynamo of Germany? What would that have done? And uh, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's pretty idiosyncratic. Uh, it's, a lot of it is score settling with intellectuals and political figures the guy doesn't like, but it's definitely interesting. As someone who loves inter uh, counterfactual stuff, it was fun to read. Uh, but it made me think that I kind of want to write something called Lincoln Lives because I do 
in my, like the foggiest regions of my brain, imagine a world where a second Lincoln term is defined by a process whereby Lincoln uh, momentum, which was towards universal black su manhood suffrage and towards uh, a confrontation with capital on behalf of labor. Like, obviously, these are all, you know, we don't know. That in the context of, like, this, this hugely fluid moment, you know, an entire region of the country destroyed and occupied by troops, like, turned into clay for movement, clay for shaping, in a, in a, a situation where Lincoln's powers in this moment are, are at a point where he does occupy a fulcrum in, in American and world history. Like, he is, he is uniquely uh, free to move in a way that very few historical actors are because of how fluid the situation he was in control of was. He commanded, by his very mere order, a, a what, million-man army that had military domination and, the inf and had an annihilated the infrastructure of its defeated southern tier. And a... Congress filled to the brim with radical Republicans insisting upon a, a land massive re land redistrib redistribution and a political disenfranchisement of, of top rebels. Now, if they pursued that, because obviously Lincoln said malice towards none, but it's like, okay, who, wh who, whose malice are you more concerned about? And I really do think that Lincoln, far more than Johnson, would have been much more concerned about making sure that there was no malice that befell ex-slaves rather than ex-Confederates. And if that is the case, and as I have said explicitly, if it is connected to land redistribution to white farmers as well in the South, that's the huge thing. Because there was... There were attempts in the 1890s and 1880s among populists to try to create transracial uh, uh, connections, and that that was what brought the real boot of Jim Crow down. I believe uh, Henry Steele Cominger has a book about that, The Strange Case of Jim Crow, where the thesis is that Jim Crow, is, uh, the, 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 uh, the Jim Crow laws were a direct response to po uh, populist attempts to create uh, interracial political coalitions. Yeah, C. Van Woodward, not Cominger. So if you wouldn't have had that, if you would have been able to connect, cut the connection, the social connection between small holding white farmers and the plantation elite, reoriented their politics, turned them into Republicans, you you decapitate, you internally decapitate that node of like the capitalist uh, uh, pr productive economy of the United States. Now, the thing is, Lincoln would have at every level been incredibly, you know, it would have been pressured and, and, and uh, pushed away, away from that by Northern capital, which was at an unprecedented degree of power following the concentration of capital that happened over the course of the Civil War. <coughs> And that really is what jump-started America's industrial economy. Same thing happened, by the way, in uh, England. The thing, obviously, the Industrial Revolution in England was in full swing by the turn of the 19th century, but it was the Napoleonic Wars that led to the hyper, like, 
the next stage of, uh, of English capitalism to emerge. Similar thing happened in the United States after Civil War. But those productive forces could have been politically channeled. The, the forces existed between the ex-slaves of the South, the uh, former smallholders of the South, uh, and the Union fucking army, which composed the working class and like yeomanry of the entire northern tier and it their political and their family members uh in in the in the northern states the thing the main thing he would have contended with and the main thing that might have pulled us towards something worse is that back door that open drafty back door of land just that 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 diffuser of political tension of politi- of uh, of of social dis- discontent uh at the end of the day what what the the civil war when it finally did end with the compromise of 1877 it was on the backs of the former slaves it was we have opened this bottle we have opened this genie's bottle of emancipation which you know all all the whigs and the the moderates had always said would be unmanageable because how are you going to get racist white people to live with black people on equal equal terms well since we got the reconstruction we got with the reimposition of latifundist uh, p- plantation economies and the reinstitution of, of, of slavery th- uh, or, or of, I guess just like the insurfeiting of former slaves uh, and, and, the, and the continued exploitation and, or uh, the continued um, uh, languishment, the, the continued languishment uh, of the ex-Confederate military uh, rank and file smallholders. Within that framework, the decision was made, well, we'll essentially recreate the old model uh, without, the, without all of the, uh, I guess you'd boil it down to etiquette. All, all the loud voices, all the ruckus, all, all the dirt and, uh, and rudeness of chattel slavery and replace it with a more refined, more abstracted exploitation through sharecropping arrangements and convict leasing. Well... They're, look at all the forms here. This is all in order. I mean, I, he owes this much, uh, this much, cotton to uh, his former master because he borrowed these many seeds. They're, this is a legal exchange. This person is working to clear a, 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 a bayou for fucking turpentine mining or something because he committed a crime. He was found to be uh, lo- loitering in the town square. This is all. This is all above board. And that was the liberal revolution. But it could have been pushed further. That's why, you know, it, it, it was the completion of the bourgeois revolution. But just like in every revolutionary scenario, there is fluidity. It could have been the beginning of something very different. Now, how far it would have gone? I don't know. I don't think you get a situation where, like, racial harmony is is uh, real in America by the turn of the 19th century. No. But I, have a, I could see a situation where you have... A, a abolition of de jure, or I'm sorry, uh, yes, you have an abolition of de jure segregation in America across the entire continent, not just in the north. Uh, you have an abolition of de jure uh, segregation by like maybe the 20s. And you know, what kind of politics is created by that coalition, by the way? What, like that Republican Party? What does that Republican Party look like? What are the pressures on it, especially as industrialization increases? And as the working class self-consciousness comes more and more into fruition, how are the conflicts there 
fought when you have a unified multiracial working class rather than a uh, siloed and uh, racially uh, fragmented and mutually um, antagonized working class. And then, yeah, like, if you have the end of de jure apartheid by the 20s without, because the thing is, is the end of, our end of de jure, comp, uh, comp, uh, our end of de jure apartheid in America happened almost simultaneously with the end of American prosperity. That's the thing that gets overlooked when we talk about the backlash. We talk about you know, how white people decided they would rather be racist than have pensions. That wasn't the decision. The decision was, I'd rather be racist and adhere and maintain some sort of uh, hierarchy where I'm on top of somebody else than get nothing, because that was what was on offer uh, after, after that, the rearrangement of the economy that happened after the, the oil shock of the 70s and, and, and the, the end of the Bretton Woods system. So if you have an end of de jure segregation in a moment of like, I don't know, a, uh, a, a socialized a boom of American productivity, considering that it was a massive uh, resource-rich continent that was maybe over time uh, seeing its industrial capacity tamed towards social ends, oh my God, you have a, you have a dynamo of potential uh, revolutionary, which is what Marx and Engels thought the United States was, the dynamo of the, the next century, and they were correct. And we were in the tipping point, and we tipped the wrong way every time. And I would argue that the first big tip, and the one that's most mind-bending, because, it, because it's the first one, it is the most historically contingent one, it is the Civil War and Reconstruction, and the maintenance of the constitutional system, all of which spring from, at least partially, the Lincoln assassination. So I was wondering, I, I might write something about that. I think it might be interesting. Yeah, we're getting uh, we're gonna get shit hammered here with uh, some rain coming up. That's why I'm battened the hatches down. Free real estate, man, it really was the downfall. But I'm imagining, like, I, if I was gonna write something and I was gonna, you know, try to like game it out, you know, a situation where after Appomattox, the uh, a Lincoln-led Reconstruction that leads to a, you know, a shaping up of challenge right away, like a, 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 almost immediately the former, you know, uh, uh, leaders of the Confederacy realize that, oh, this is really shit at stake here. Like, we are going to be disenfranchised. We are going to lose our land. We are going to lose our power. There would have been another flare-up of violence. The war wouldn't have ended just the way it didn't in our real life, but it ended with this insurgent campaign led by the Red, red Shirts and the Klan eventually leading uh, to a series of almost basically coups uh, and abrogations of democracy across the South, which were abetted by the North essentially uh, demobilizing. If that fight had happened earlier and been more intense and sharp, with the, the army still out in the field and with the commitment to the cause as its zenith and the commitment to the cause of emancipation uh, at its zenith, what do you see? Hey, maybe they call in Garibaldi. Remember, there was that offer by the congressman to have Garibaldi come and lead the Union Army, and he said he wouldn't do it unless they made slavery, the ending of slavery a war end. Well, 
What if it's 1865 and there has to be another campaign? Maybe Garibaldi comes off the bench. Maybe Marx and Engels come over here to the fucking Conestoga wagon with a printing press in the back. Start organizing among the, uh, the, the Germans. All of this, of course, is fun and fancy, but that's the beauty of counterfactual stuff is that it, it gets to be fun. And I argue that if you pose the questions the right way, it is still useful. Because to talk about what didn't happen in 1865 and what could have happened, what was possible given the material realities we had at hand, we can talk about what could happen now. What if Marx moved to Texas in the 50s? That one could have happened too. The Prussians essentially said, we don't want, we want to keep an eye on him. But what if they'd said, eh, good riddance, which they did to a lot of those fucking people. The thing that bums me out though is that there was a wave of vigilante violence against anti-slavery German settlers in Texas when the Civil War broke out. Uh, there's uh, something, uh, an incident called the Nuensis Massacre, where a bunch of uh, German immigrants were just strung up by the local Confederate authorities. Those guys love freedom so much. They were fighting for so much fucking freedom. God, the way they would just uh, hang people for opinions, the way they did a draft before the Union did, the way they suspended habeas corpus immediately. God, we love them, don't we? I worry they would have fucking, uh, they, they would have murked him. But then maybe, hey, him and Engels go out with a bunch of guys and form some sort of guerrilla column. Engels was a pretty good uh, uh, military tactician and strategic thinker. They called him the general because it was his favorite like topic. But uh, and he commanded troops during, or he no, he didn't command troops. He was an adjutant for troops with uh, Village, my boy August Village, who was a Civil War general uh, during the forty-eight revolutions. Uh, he was actually. Uh, reprimanded for during, at one of the barricades uh, in the Rhineland, going around and taking all of the German flags because one of the, the 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 main flag of the German forty eight revolutions was the tricolor of an imagined liberal German republic, taking them down and replacing them with red flags. But he acquitted himself ably. Uh, he described um, he described the. Um, he described, he, he described the strategic situation in the Civil War at the beginning of the Civil War uncannily. He, he, uh, all, two years before they started the march to Atlanta, he was telling Marx, yeah, no, they got to go cut it in half this way. Why are they going after Richmond? Richmond is meaningless. Cut the thing in half. And eventually that's what they fucking realized. It took them fucking three years to do it. And he also described what World War I would look like 30 years earlier with almost uncanny ability. So yeah, maybe they could become like a, a, a unit in there. Hey, throw everybody in there. Get, every, get, all, get all the... Have Haiti come on. Like the U.S. recognizes Haiti, but then like gives them a bunch of money and has them send a detachment. But... Uh, there was, there's an Engels quote in this book, this Lincoln Lives book that I just, or this Lenin Lives book that I just read that is stunning. I hadn't encountered it before. Let's see if I can find it. 
damn it, this is not going well. But yeah, if we were going to have a Lenin in America, a figure of that sort of pivotal equivalence, it would have been him. Because Lenin is the same way. There's no recover revolution if Lenin doesn't show up at the Finland station. I think most people are in agreement with that, who study the topic. Because the Bolsheviks were in the process of resolving themselves to supporting the provisional government basically because they were too afraid of the alternative, because they didn't have any confidence in their ability to command the situation or govern if they did. Lenin showing, into town, showing up to town and publishing the April theses and shit was a lightning bolt that broke open all of the, through, and cut through to a degree. And over time, and it took a while, but it got through, that just cut over time through the, the, uh, the, the, iner the inertia at, at the, in the party. Um, so he's another guy who, you know, what if he'd had his, uh, his brain hemorrhage, you know, a decade earlier, you probably would have had some sort of Kornilov-esque military coup overthrowing the, uh, provisional government. And then depending on how much resistance to that emerged, some sort of pre-fascist anti-Semitic, like, industrial pogrom. That's what Trotsky said, and I agree with him on that point. Which is why it's stupid to get mad at the Bolsheviks or, or, uh, or condemn them for doing the revolution. I mean, there's plenty of points where they made the wrong moves after that, but they, they were doing the only thing they could have done, and their, their gamble that they were going to spark a world revolution, it was not a miscalculation. That was the moment. That was the moment. And it was the Germans more than anybody who dropped the fucking ball. And it was because the, they had been too developed. The, 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 the socialist movement had been too captured by the superstructure in a way that Marx didn't anticipate. Oh, but this is the quote I was looking for. So, uh, so in 1887, this is what Marx, or this is what Engels said about what was going to happen if the brinksmanship between the empires of Europe wasn't ended. No war is any longer possible for Prussia, Germany, except a world war, and a world war indeed of an extent and violence hitherto undreamt of. Eight to ten millions of soldiers will massacre one another, and in doing so devour the whole of Europe until they have stripped it barer than any swarm of locusts has ever done. The devastations of the Thirty Years' War compressed into three or four years and spread over the whole continent. Famine, pestilence, general demoralization, both of the armies and of the mass of the people produced by acute distress, hopeless confusion of our artificial machinery and trade, industry and credit, ending in general bankruptcy, collapse of the old states and their traditional state wisdom to such an extent that crowns will roll by dozens on the pavement and there will be nobody to pick them up. Absolute impossibility of foreseeing how it will all end and who will come out of the struggle as victor, only one result is absolutely certain. General exhaustion and the establishment of the conditions for the ultimate victory of the working class. And he was 100% correct, because the ultimate conditions for the victory of the working class were the Russian Revolution and then the German Revolution. But the, 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 the German working class was led by people who were no longer working class. And you might want to say, aha, so that's just like the PMC now? No, because that was an actual working class movement. 
All right, we are post that. We are in the post. We are in the post. We are in the shadow of the defeat. We are in the shadow of the defeat of the 18, of, of the World War. Because imagine if a more socialist America encounters a world revolution starting in Russia and being kicked off across Europe. Imagine a world where the United States has, say, like a President Eugene Debs during World War II instead of prisoner Eugene Debs and President Woodrow Wilson. How do they respond to that? Do they send troops to Archangel to ally with a bunch of fucking uh, uh, genocidaires and, and mystic psychos and, and, and martinets? Probably not. But we missed the moment, and now we are in the post-political. That superstructural capture that started with the, the leaders of the SDP, your guys like your Eberts, your Noskis, now it's everywhere. It's universalized, in America anyway. We are all that. We are all Noski. We are all Ebert. No matter what we think, no matter how much we think that we're fucking Rosa Luxemburg, I'm sorry, we're all Noski. But the difference, but the thing is, is that all of that all of that upward trending um, striving that drove the leaders of the German Social Democrats towards accommodation when they needed to strike against capital because it was the moment, it was the resolving moment, they were, uh, that doesn't exist anymore. There's no hope that anybody's getting any sugar cubes. There's only misery. And when we, Break away, enough of us break away from this phantom pantomime of politics and re reforge human connections. I think we will be able to sidestep all of that and come orthogonal to the, the ossified superstructure and shatter it. Or we won't, and we will have a common ruin of the contending classes, which is what happened in Nazi Germany. That was the common ruin of the contending classes, 1945. I said orthogonal. Oh, orthog. No, I'm, that's how I pronounce it. I'm not going to say orthogonal. Orthogonal. Fuck you. Orthogonal. Fuck off. Yeah, like those are two. Those are two. You know, in the plinko board of Western civilization and world civilization, as we you know move towards the intensification of history, uh, as as our technology accelerates change, some big Plinko board moments were Lincoln assassination, boop, and the failure of the, of the German revolution really more than anything. Boop. Yeah, I am a Midwesterner. I'm going to say orthogonal. What other way to say orthogonal is there, though? Never mind. You're, you're typing. You can do it if you wanted to. That's silly. That's silly. Mm. 
I, I call it the Plinketto board, not the Plinko board, because I watched way more uh, Best of the Worst than I have fucking Prices Right. God, these guys are giving me the business. I know what orthogonal is. Orthogonal is per, coming at a perpendicular angle, and also right angle, and also the club that uh, Nixon founded uh, at Whittier College after he got rejected by the Franklins. I'm just talking about how to pronounce it. Orthogonal. Orthogonal. Oh! Orthogonal. Orthogonal. I get it. Thanks. That's how Will would say it. Orthogonal. And that's not me, baby. At the end of the day, I am truly uh, a, a middle European bog peasant. I am a square-headed hick at the end of the day. Bye, guys.